Blog Talk Radio. Everybody, I'm going to start first with 
We're telling my co-host, Sam D., uh, thank you for your service, Sam. And uh, and I want you to know how much I appreciate it. appreciate uh, you serving our nation. And I want to tell uh, the uh, all the rest of the folks uh, in the Texas crew, Sergeant Major Coonrad, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Leeming, uh, uh, Major Cronk, uh, I don't remember what the, the Mark's link was, uh, but uh, uh, it turned out that he and I actually served in a, in a, in a, one of the same units, uh, not at the same time, but uh, we had both uh, cycled through the G Company 143rd Airborne Ranger Unit, and uh, I don't know what his rank was, but I want to thank uh, Mark for his service. Uh, I've got uh, John Hawes with me uh, this week teaching a uh, precision rifle sniper course. He just finished... Uh, also teaching a 2A combat carving course for Battle Road here. And I want to thank John for uh, his service. And uh, I don't know if you guys uh, paid any attention to country music. I, I don't really listen to much music at all anymore unless it's, I mean, any modern music or anything like that. I mean, I have, uh, I have my... Uh, Music that I'll listen to uh, every now and then, but I don't listen to that much music anymore. Uh, but if you listen to country music, and the only reason I know this is because my daughters are country music fans, and they they listen to the, the country music uh, awards and stuff like that. They told me that the uh, song uh, "I Drive Your Truck" was voted as the Best song of the year, I guess. And uh, that song uh, was written about uh, uh, Sergeant First Class Jared Monty. And uh, uh, Sergeant First Class Monty was uh, with the was with the team that uh, that John Laws was on. Uh, during the uh, Operation Gordesh push. They were in the Gordesh Valley in Afghanistan. And uh, they were supposed to be uh, uh, pulling surveillance with the possibility of taking out uh, uh, some possible high-value targets there locally. And uh, and the mission lasted longer than it was supposed to last. I believe they, they, they were supplied for... I think for four or five days, I think either three or four or four or five days, and the mission went went past that because they were asked to stay and continue surveillance, and so they needed resupply. You know, there's no there's no place to get water on top of uh, a mountain, uh, thousands and thousands of feet up uh, in Afghanistan. So they had to have water and stuff like that, and they asked for a resupply to be done after dark in order to uh, to try to maintain security uh, for their position. But the uh, military sent an aircraft in during daylight hours. And uh, as it was leaving, they noticed a uh, one of the locals was looking at them with binoculars, which wasn't a good thing because most uh, goat herders don't keep binoculars. 
And then sure enough, by the time they were back to their uh, overnight position, the unit uh, came over a tremendous amount of heavy sustained fire uh, from anywhere from between 60 to 80 uh, insurgents. And uh, and the in, in the ensuing firefight, uh, they had one uh, uh, individual killed, and uh, uh, that was uh, Patrick. Uh, think of his rank here, but uh, uh, and then uh, uh, PSC Bradbury was wounded, and he was uh, he was stationed well out. His post was well out from the rest of the team, and he was wounded. And Sergeant First Class uh, Monty decided it was his duty to retrieve uh, Bradbury and bring him back uh, within the lines. And he made three attempts to do so under absolutely uh, horrific uh, volume of gunfire. And on the third attempt, uh, he was... Uh, he was pretty much shot to rag dolls and hit by an RPG. And uh, they were eventually able to drive off the uh, combatants with uh, with sustained artillery and uh, close air support and then just maintaining their perimeter with small arms and were able to be uh, and and they couldn't be airlifted, although they did attempt to have uh, some of their wounded airlifted. They they were attempting to airlift uh, uh, Bradbury. They sent uh, one of the uh, the medics down on a cable with a stretcher. They tied him in. Tied. Uh, Bradbury in started hauling him up with the medic on the cable, and uh, I think that joint got to between like 100 and 160, 180 feet. The cable broke, sending uh, and the rescue medic down into the rocks at terminal velocity. And uh, then John and his team uh, walked back out of the mountains over the next uh, uh, day and a half. And for those, for this uh, engagement, Sergeant uh, First Class Jeremonti was awarded the Medal of Honor posthumously. And uh, several of the other members were decorated, including uh, Test Sergeant John Hawes, who received the Silver Star. Before Monty left for Afghanistan, uh, he had his... You know, he had his pickup truck, and he didn't want to leave it uh, unattended during his deployment. So he drove it over to his dad's, and he said, hey, dad, take care of the truck for me while I'm gone. You know, make sure, you know, nothing happens to it, and, you know, you can drive it and uh, keep it safe here, and, you know, I'll pick it up when I get back. But, of course, he didn't come back alive. Uh, and... Uh, Sergeant Monty's father was telling the story uh, one evening on a radio show 
And uh, some songwriters happened to hear him talking about this. And he said that though his son was, he was very, very proud of his son. And and he, you know, he missed him and that he felt uh, at times when he drove his son's truck that he felt close to his son. You know, he was in his son's truck. He'd ridden in it before. And when he was driving his son's truck, he felt close to his son. He felt, you know, connection back to him. And the songwriters took that story and wrote a song. And now it is uh, the, I guess, song of the year in, uh, for country music and, uh, I just thought that, uh, I don't know, I mean, uh, I just thought it was uh, something you guys needed to hear. It's just one story. I'm telling you, just one one story. There are thousands of stories out there like that. Thousands of stories. And just as many stories uh, that you're never going to hear because... Nobody saw it. Nobody saw it or nobody survived it. Just as many stories of heroism and bravery, but you're never going to hear about it because nobody saw it and nobody, nobody survived it. And just as many folks that uh, brave and courageous things, uh, but they don't get awards for them because uh, it, getting an award isn't it. Believe me, it isn't. Uh, it isn't a certain thing. Uh, I've gotten awards for things that uh, that I didn't see any reason to get them for, and then I've, I've not received rewards for things I thought were that I would have given myself one for. So, just because somebody doesn't have an award doesn't mean that they didn't do something. It wasn't that that that. It could have possibly been worthy of a Congressional Medal of Honor. There are thousands and thousands of stories like this in the, the last 238 years, stories of courage and sacrifice. And listen, I want to make sure everybody understands that, that just because, uh, uh, just, be, it's just because folks serve and nothing happens on their watch, it doesn't make them any less, uh, you shouldn't be any less thankful for that because, like I said, we have an unbroken line of veterans, and that's what makes our nation safe. Uh, people aren't called up, to, we don't have folks that, uh, they're not called up just during uh, problems. There are folks there every single minute of every day standing on the wall, standing there watch. Without them, though, you wouldn't have the nation that we have today. <clears throat> All right. Uh, I want to uh, to make sure that folks know that uh, if you have somebody you'd like to thank, we would like to hear you, and we would like to give you a chance to do so on the air. You can do that by calling in at 347-308-8790. Three zero eight eight seven nine zero, 
and uh, we'll be glad to put you on the air. Now, if you call in and uh, and Sam opens your mic and asks you a question, he's not putting you on the air, so you can talk to him. Even if you don't want to talk, if uh, if Sam opens your mic and says, hey, you know, uh, what's going on or what do you want to say or stuff like that, he's just talking just to you. It's off air. All right, so be sure and answer him. If, if he asks you a question, be sure and answer him. You can just tell him, hey, I don't want to talk. And that's what he'll, uh, that's what he'll type on my switchboard. You know, I, and I can see that he says, uh, just listening or something like that, or wants to talk or, or wants to talk up or wants to thank a veteran or whatever. So be sure and tell him so that, so that I'll know whether I should uh, uh, put you on the air or not. You're welcome to call in and just listen. We'd also like for you to call in and thank, uh, if you want to give a, 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 a shout-out, a thanks to the veterans that you know or the veterans that you don't know. If you want to say thanks to your local Appleseed crew, uh, then that is also uh, a perfect way to do it, but to uh, put it out over the air, and, uh, and it will be a, a nice permanent recorded thank you to those folks. Uh, once again, the number is 347-308-8790. Now, I was watching a, a show last night uh, that that had an organization. Now, I, I tuned in right in the middle of it, so I, I wasn't sure exactly who was doing it. Uh, but there was an organization that was... Uh, they were putting together, uh, I guess they put together several groups or several organizations and made it possible uh, that they were they were awarding mortgage-free homes to wounded veterans. And, uh, I mean, that's, I got to tell you man, that uh, that's got to be uh, it's a fantastic thing to do. Because you've got somebody that uh, that obviously was in good physical shape, and they wouldn't be in the military. They certainly wouldn't be in a, serving in a combat. Uh, and they've gone overseas, and they've been wounded. And uh, a lot of times, they've been uh, it's, it's made it impossible then for them to to hold down a regular job. Now, how are they going to support their families? How are they going to how are they going to uh, have a place for their their families to live, and uh, this organization is giving them houses. Like I said mortgage-free houses. And basically, it's it's a, it's a home that uh, that has been, uh, I guess, from the very beginning, was a uh, a turnkey project where it was uh, the land was purchased and then the house built and paid for uh, with uh, Completely with the idea that it would be the end product would be a uh, would be a gift to a uh, a combat wounded veteran, <clears throat> and uh, I'm just saying it, it's got to be a major relief uh, to have one thing taken off their plate, one thing. Uh, and that is having uh, you know a roof over the heads of their selves and their family. And uh, I wish I could 
I, I just came in and, and and I just thought of this that I, you know I saw it last night. But I'd like to find out who it is. And uh, if any guys in the chat room, if you know who I'm talking about or, or what organization is doing this, uh, if you post it in there, then I'll I'll just want to read it out over the air so that uh, so that we can you know give them some uh, uh, some thank yous for it. But uh, yeah, like I said, that's just it's a fantastic thing. You know, when I was a kid, uh, when American soldiers were receiving awards like the Congressional Medal of Honor, it was a pretty major event on TV. It was televised. You had the they had the ceremony of the soldiers receiving the Medal of Honor uh, from the President of the United States. And uh, and it was televised. From like for me, that was that was some of my main heroes. Uh, I mean, I remember uh, seeing uh, at the time Captain uh, Roger H. C. Donlin. Uh, getting the Congressional Medal of Honor for his defense of, uh, of a Special Forces A-team uh, base in Vietnam. And uh, and he wrote a book about it a little bit later. And I read the book, and that was one of the things that actually had me... That one of the reasons I eventually ended up in the military, joining the, you know, joining the service. And then by uh, by complete accident, because uh, I had no knowledge of where uh, of what had ever happened to Donald, uh, I ended up in uh, Panama, and actually ended up working uh, over on uh, uh, the Atlantic side, and uh, and who should be a commander? of the third battalion some special forces group there, but Colonel at this point, Roger H. C. Donovan. So that was uh that was very exciting for me. Uh, I didn't get to meet him. I was trying to figure out some way to finagle a meeting, uh, you know, even if it was uh, if I had to wait outside the uh, headquarters and try and uh and pigeonhole him. But I didn't think that was very smart. Uh I did see him a couple of times and then I ended up uh uh working uh, often on not as not as special forces. I was never in special forces, but uh, uh, working in a, a peripheral way, peripheral way with the Third Battalion Seven Special Forces Group. They did uh, the training for the uh, uh, the biathlons, and so I was working with the Special Forces Group doing training for the biathlons, <laughs> which is in the military to see was firing the M14 and uh, throwing the hand grenades and running. And then in the uh, uh, working with them as uh, a volunteer for Op4, and that was where the, uh, you know, everybody has, uh, they have ended up like with a war game. It's about, uh, you know, be between two weeks and a month long. And, uh, and it's gamed out in a scenario and stuff like that. And, you know, different units have different things. You know, mech units have different kind of, uh, you know, maneuver operations. And then uh, for the uh, SF Battalion, you know, one of the uh, uh, 
the A-teams. And the, what the A-teams do is, you know, they go somewhere. They'll go in. One of their missions is to go somewhere to go train and equip an indigenous army to fight, right? They'll go in. The 12 of them will go in. And then uh, somewhere between, uh, between two and six months later, they may have uh, an army of three to 500 men that they're leading, uh, all with uniforms, boots, socks, uh, you know, pants, uh, you name it, backpacks, uh, rifles, grenades, everything else. All brought in and issued by them. They're trained. Uh, they'll train these guys to, uh, uh, to work in a team and fight together. And, you know, they'll go straight into the jungle. They'll, they'll recruit the guys that are in their loincloths, and a few months later they'll be in tiger stripes, uh, the LBE and, uh, and M16s. So they needed folks that uh, to take it that uh, that could be the indigenous personnel, and uh, so that's what we that's how we how we ended up there and uh, working with them as then they were the the trainers. And uh, the, the whole long story was just to tell you that. America's Heroes used to be on TV, and they used to get recognition. They used to be the guys that that got the Congressional Medal of Honor. Uh, not the guys who uh, play basketball and then go to prison and then they get out of prison to play basketball again and then go back to prison. That used to not be the heroes. They used to be the American service members. And we used to remember, and we used to know when they were being awarded. We used to know what they were doing. Uh, nowadays, everything you hear in the United States, for the most part, nobody, uh, we go about our business without knowing that, uh, uh, on, for most of us, I'm going to say everybody, but for a lot of us, for most of us, that, uh, you may not think during the course of the day that uh, we have thousands of men and women who are uh, overseas in harm's way and that they are getting uh, shot to rag dolls every day. They are getting uh, uh, killed and wounded and maimed. Yeah, we may have a fairly low KIA count. That's uh, killed in action count. But if you look at that, if you contrast it with the wounded, severely wounded folks, we got a huge number of those. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sit here and debate on you about should we be over there or not. I don't think we should. And I think that they. I think that they are, uh, that us trying to make other people into things that they're not is a lost cause. And uh, I think at some point in the future that they will uh, they will catch up, but I don't think that we should be trying to, uh, I don't think that, that what we're doing, I don't think we're going about it in the right way. Not enough that I'd be willing to, that I'd be willing to send off my daughters to be killed there. All right? And I'm not saying that uh, I'm not proud of every person that's serving over there today. 
in the military because they're not making the decisions on what to do or why we're there, right? They're over there doing their jobs. They're doing it to the best of their ability. And uh, and I'm 100 million thousand percent uh, proud of them. To uh, call in to... Uh, uh, to tell somebody thanks. If you're a veteran and you want to talk, if you want to, if you're a veteran and you want to tell us about your story, then we'll be glad to hear that too. All right. In a minute, we're going to start talking about the uh, the the reasons that America won the American Revolutionary War, our first Civil War. Uh, but I'd like to give the uh, the folks. Uh, listening, the folks who are listening live uh, to uh, call in and tell folks things. I got uh, got from Minnesota, and it says that you'd like to you'd like to say thanks to your local crew. Welcome to the show, Scott. Hi, Scout. Uh, Scott from Minnesota. I'd like to thank uh, Kevin Cutlers from. Uh, he's our Minnesota State Coordinator, and uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, his leg is still busted up, and he's on crutches, but uh, he still shoot-bossed the event that we had uh, to inaugurate the uh, Pine Island Range, and uh, we had a good crew to help him out, but uh, he uh, he shoot-bossed from uh, crutches and a chair and uh, made it all possible. Well, that sounds fantastic, and, and, and please relay my my thanks to him too. Now, is this the the new range you were telling me about? Uh, yes, there's a a highway that the uh, the previous range was uh, right next to, and the the uh, state of Minnesota was widening the road, and so there was right, a whole right. bunch of things, and, and they had to move the range over a little bit, and so with some fundraising plus some. Uh, monies from the state because of the the forced move they were able to expand the range and now they got uh five bays two of them which are the the largest of which is suitable for an apple seed uh like a hundred feet deep by a hundred feet wide and then the other ones are not quite as wide uh pistol bays and then there's a hundred and two hundred yard uh a uh, rifle that uh, goes behind the pistol bays lengthways and a couple trap bays, so it's a it's a nice facility, nice clubhouse, and uh, and uh, even has some uh, lights on it for uh, for uh, it's getting dark here soon and gets dark soon in the winter. So, well, that sounds great. Uh, how many folks showed at the apple seed? Uh, we had. 14 uh, students and uh, one family of six. That was uh, great to see there. And uh, uh, with uh, with a loaner rifle that was all uh, tuned up without problems, the uh, dad was able to uh, shoot his rifleman score, and he's looking forward to, to bringing the kids back again. And uh, we're hoping to uh, have him... Uh, Possibly help with the program in the future. So well, that sounds two, great. Two young young boys that kind of had a 
introduction to marksmanship that uh they got a they got a good start and uh their older sister that was uh shooting very well also well i know that uh when you called in last time i remember you talking about this but uh but i wasn't sure what had happened i wasn't sure that if the uh I wasn't sure that it was going to happen. For some reason, I wasn't thinking it was going to happen that quick. I was thinking that that last time I talked to you that that the range was, at that time, that the range was just getting closed down. Um, no, it's, it's uh, I've been trying to get a shoot. They must have been working on it before, before that. Yeah, I mean, I've been trying to get a shoot there for the last two years, even before they started uh, uh, working on the new range and everything and talking to the... Uh, the uh, club board at uh, board meetings and things like that, and and now the the way the range was set up previously, it, it wasn't really the bays weren't deep enough really, but now they have a, a the hundred hundred feet deep, so we can set up a a twenty five meter twenty five meter shoot, and uh, they've been doing some. Uh, publicizing and uh, things like that and so there's a lot of new new range members and uh it's a it's an excellent situation now and and uh so a few a dozen a dozen club members had a chance to to see Appleseed and and uh we're going to ask for a, a April date at the next board meeting and hopefully we'll uh, be able to get a couple dozen uh, or more uh, at the April shoot Oh, that sounds great. And how many uh has a committed to uh to regular shoots there? Well, uh not not yet, but we're we're hoping to you know, at least uh get two or three a year. Um as we have Two a year in Winona, and then Rochester is only like 15 miles away, and we have we can have two to three there, and we're hoping to get uh, two to three shoots at uh, little ranges at the smaller ranges all around this. It's a small metro area for Rochester. Rochester is about 110 to 120,000 uh, people, and so if we we'd like to get uh, opportunity of two to three shoots a year at at the, all the local ranges eventually. Right. Well, that sounds great. And I'm glad that uh, that the way that it turned out, that it turned out, you know, actually better. I mean, there are plenty of cases right now. Almost every, uh, every state is uh, their firing ranges and shooting clubs and stuff are, are targets. Uh, from uh, from everything you can imagine. From uh, one of the main things, of course, is encroachment of the uh, of suburbia and stuff that is uh, you know spreading out and around into the ranges. I can't think of how many times I've I have uh, seen ranges that uh, you know have been there uh, 10, 15, 20, 30 years and people started moving in around it and then they said, you know, we don't like this range here. Right. Even though even though the range was there when they moved in, uh once they moved in they said, you know, we don't like this range here and we want it gone. And 
And in a lot of cases, they can exert enough pressure that they can make it go away. And uh, the only way to prevent that in a lot of cases is to make sure that uh, that you're a member of uh, some local shooting range and that you do your part to to help them stay open because uh, as they close down more and more, then there are less and less places to shoot. So the other uh, uh, range have, uh, that we have shoots at the main Rochester range that's that's a risk. We had uh, we had rounds that left the range, and we've been taking steps there. The board's been taking steps to um, build the berm up and put in uh, put in eyebrows or wooden things that can deflect or keep keep rounds from leaving the range because if more rounds leave the range then then they could possibly get it shut down right right and that's like i said that's a problem because i'll tell you right now even though i probably i'm sure there are probably folks that don't want to hear this but i'm telling you that there's no such thing as a range that that keeps every round from leaving it. It's just <laughs> an impossibility, you know? And uh, you want to know, if you want to see yourself how this works, then just uh, grab uh, seven or eight of your buddies and uh, go to a firing range at dusk and have everybody load up with tracers and uh, <laughs> and start shooting. And you'll see what, you'll see very quickly what happens. That, uh, that a huge amount of the heat of those rounds leave the range and they go wherever they want to go. And uh, and I'm sure that uh, the reason it doesn't do more damage is because of, uh, in, the, in the military we call it uh, the uh, big sky little bullet uh, theory. And uh, that was a theory of uh, uh, when things were getting hot and heavy, and we were calling in a lot of fire missions and stuff like that, and uh, and there were also at the same time there were aircraft coming in for close air support and helicopters and stuff like that uh, traveling back and forth. The theory was that the sky is so big, and even the uh, like 155 millimeter projectiles are so small that it's just a uh, it's, it it would be a uh, it would just be uh, almost virtually impossible to have the two meet, you know, to have uh, an arbitrary aircraft shot down by, uh, you know, by going through the path of a 155-millimeter projectile. Now, the artillery folks were happy with this theory. The aircraft folks hated it. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. They had a little more on the line. You, know, you see the same thing. Oh, listen, I'm telling you, I lived uh, downtown, in downtown Houston for a portion of my life. And I had uh, a, uh, uh, I lived in a warehouse in my own, in a, in a studio in my own warehouse. And uh, I had about uh, 10,000 square feet of roof uh, on top of me. And the folks that owned the strip of warehouses, there's actually Leona Helmsley, if you remember her, she owns that warehouse. She was, she was my landlady, and I was one of the little people. And uh, 
they would send out the maintenance people whenever there was uh, leaks in the roof and stuff like that. And they were out one day working on the roof, and I said, you know, I'm gonna. With, there were there were skylights that were back in the buildings that you could that, that would let the light through. <clears throat> I don't know, maybe uh, you know that they put in maybe in the 50s or 60s. And the these the warehouse was actually very old, it was built uh, at the turn of the century. But I was going to ask them if they could maybe uncover the skylights so I could have more light because they've done that in a couple of the other warehouses. So I, I climbed up the roof to talk to him. Well, I'm talking to the guy, and he reaches over and he picks up uh, something off the roof, and he put it in his pocket. I said, well, what was that? He goes, oh, it's like another bullet. I said, a bullet? You know, what's that from? And he said, uh, you know, man, he said, we'll get, uh, we'll get, uh, at times they'll get, uh, you know, 15 or 20 projectiles, uh, you know, off the roof, you know, during their maintenance. And these are bullets that uh, folks... In the city, you know, during their, uh, uh, you know, La, La Raza wedding celebrations and stuff like that, that they would uh, uh, fire up in the air, uh, you know, in celebration, 4th of July and, uh, you know, New Year's or anything else. And the bullets come down and strike the warehouse. And uh, it's not like they were aiming at that warehouse, right? That, the warehouse was just getting its fair share of the projectiles. I mean, the projectiles wow. were coming down all over all over the city, right? You know, over mm-hmm. the course of the year, the, they're coming down over the city. But uh, but they weren't, uh, you know, as far as I know, I haven't heard of them hitting anybody. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's the same thing with the ranges. I, I was at a range. Uh, I'm not going to say where it was because I don't want to cause it any grief, but I was at a range in uh, North Carolina. And uh, we were firing tracers at the end of the day, and I, I couldn't think of a more of a safer looking range, you know, looking at it. But I had a road that paralleled the range about uh, maybe 300 yards or so through the woods. But uh, we were sitting there shooting the tracers, and uh, I saw this uh, truck, uh, like a like a rider truck, you know, kind of a, a cargo truck, coming down the highway, and I saw one of the uh, tracers hit something, like on around the 400 or 500 uh, meter berm, took a sharp 90 degree turn, zipped right in front of the cab of that truck, and uh, and the truck never slowed down, and brake lights never came on, nothing. I don't guess they saw it. I saw it, and I was freaked out, but... Uh, the only reason you see it is because it's a tracer. So the rounds are still doing the same things, you know. Uh, just, you just don't see them. So rounds are always going to leave the ranges, no matter what you do. You can cut it down. Uh, yeah, a lot of it minimizes as much do. as possible. Right. And, you know, we had a safety briefing uh, this morning at the start of the uh, Precision Rifle Sniper course. And one of the things we talked about there is that... Uh, that a uh, uh, that a 308 caliber rifle, you know, depending on the the load and the bullet and the weather conditions and the angle that you have the rifle, it can travel up to five and a half miles. So, uh, yeah. So you've got uh, you know you've got uh, there's a lot to watch out for, but at the same time, 
you know, you've got you've got folks moving into these areas right up against the range, and then they want to they want to take the range out. And it's not just ranges; they do the same thing with farms and ranches and stuff like that. Uh, there's a place in uh, oh, right outside Georgetown where uh, the suburbia has uh, expanded out and around it, and they actually have a billboard right there on the property that says, uh, you know, this is a this is a working ranch. It's been a ranch, uh, you know, since the 1800s. It's always been here. And, uh, and, uh, and yet, folks, they want it gone. So that's something that, that that as a shooter that you have to understand that's something that we're gonna have to uh we're gonna have to deal with through the coming years. So you have to make sure that that you are uh trying to do something to help support your range uh you know in their uh in their struggles against getting closed down. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. I see somebody in the chat room has uh, has posted uh, that that it looks like a news article uh, about uh, about a, a seven year old boy that was hit by a bullet fired in the air on July fourth uh, celebration or something and. Uh, uh, yeah, I see. I see Ed just saying you that liberty is dangerous, and I understand what you're saying. But you know, you don't need to. Uh, you know, one of the things that we teach Appleseed is safety, and and part of that safety is is you don't fire your your rifle at anything you're not willing to destroy, and always knowing what is. Uh, beyond your target, and, and, and having a, a really good idea about where your where your bullet's going to stop at, and that doesn't include firing it in the air. You know, uh, I've done it myself, but uh, uh, not in a populated area. And Probably normally, if I fire. Uh, less uh, chance of rounds leave, leaving the range with. Uh, with shooters practicing in uh, prone and prone position than uh, on the bench. <laughs> well, it doesn't matter what position you're using or how you're doing it, or what kind of firm you have, or anything like that. There's going to be there are going to be rounds that are going to that are going to leave the confines of the range, unless you're like on the military range. That uh, you know, that covers uh, fifty thousand acres or something like that. There's probably going to be rounds that leave the range because there's just uh, there's not much you can do. But I, I still wouldn't voluntarily uh, fire. Uh, I wouldn't discharge a firearm into the air in a populated place. If you if you no. simply if you feel you simply must fire it, then you can fire it down into the ground. Uh, Whenever I fired uh, uh, signal shots before, I made sure to fire them into the ground or into a ravine or wherever, somewhere, rather than uh, firing the bullet into the air. So, 
Uh, well, thank you uh, again, thank Scott. Thank you very much for calling in, and uh, uh, be sure and uh, let us know how uh, things are going, and uh, and just keep us abreast of the uh, events there in Minnesota. Take care of yourself. God bless you. Thanks to the uh, the crew there in Minnesota. And uh, we'll talk to you again when we talk to you again. Talk to you later. All right. Thanks, Scott. All right. We got uh, uh, Jimmy uh, out in New Mexico. And it's that time of year again. That is uh, Christmas for our troops. And uh, we've told you many times, uh, you know, Sam and I have talked about it, and uh, Jimmy and I have talked about it, about uh, how, uh, about what it means to get something uh, when you're serving overseas. And I don't mean that, uh, it's not just something, right? It's not the thing that you're getting. It could be I could, uh, when I was overseas, I could care less about what it was I was getting as long as uh, when it was mail time. When it's mail time, the the clerk comes up and he yells up mail call. And then he's got a stack of mail there and he reads your name out and... uh, and you come up and get your letter. That's how it was then. I don't know how it is. I'm sure they've got, I'm sure they have something much more uh, formal now. But uh, that's what it used to be, mail call. And then they would hand out your letters. And then, of course, everybody got to, uh, uh, everybody got to know kind of like what you were getting. Uh, you know, the clerk would, uh, he'd sniff the letters, see if they had perfume, because uh, most of the, most of the guys that were getting letters from their girlfriends, it would have uh, uh, perfume sprayed on the envelope or on the letter. It would usually have uh, the letter would usually have lipstick kiss on it, usually on the inside, but sometimes on the outside. Uh, or it might be a box that uh, uh, that hit the clerk was Kevin. That Kevin would shake and and see if he could discern if there were so like any cookies or goodies or alcohol or something else in there. And uh and to hear your name call and to get a letter, man, that was a big thing. And now this this like this wasn't in the seventeen hundreds. Uh I could uh I could get on the telephone and call somebody. There were no cell phones. Nobody had a cell phone back then, but you could get on the telephone, you could call somebody. But that's not the point. I mean it was it was just to get something and, and have like a physical uh, manifestation uh, of the fact that somebody knew you were there and uh, and they were thinking about you. That I think that was the main thing. And it's very important, all right? It's very important to receive something. And uh, Jimmy and his crew uh, there have been doing this for for quite a few years. The stuff that they uh, that they're handing out. Let me just bring him on. He can tell you uh, all about it. Hey, Jimmy, welcome to the show. Uh, you there, brother? Yeah. Well, you're here. You're on okay. there. <laughs> I heard a little voice say, "Unmuted." So, <laughs> thank you for your service, Chief, on this eleventh day of the eleventh month in the eleventh hour, sir. Hey, thank you. 
and uh, thank you for your service, Jimmy. Listen, okay. I want to thank you. Uh, I don't know if you've heard heard me, but I've been thanking you for the for the, for the job that you guys have been doing, and uh, and also, uh, even though I just put out a big long spiel about the fact that it's not about what you get, uh, you guys actually are sending some really great stuff out there. You've got you have sponsors that are that are really sending some great stuff. Tell us about what uh, the what the troops are going to be receiving this year and then how folks can get the package delivered to the people that they know. Well, the uh, the most important thing at Christmas for our troops is a name and an APO. And uh, everybody out there, uh, I'm going to give you an email address, and feel free to spread it around uh, to folks. They can email me a name and an APO, and uh, that address is J-I-M-I, at DC, that's Hotel Delta Charlie, hyphen, not the underscore, but the little minus mark, nm.com. So it's J I M I at HDC nm.com. And uh, right now, as of today, we're close to 1,500 troops. Our goal again this year is 2,500. Last year we sent over 2,700. And uh, we've already got the pallet in of rim oil and boar snakes. And uh, the knives uh, have been shipped. We should have them in the warehouse if they haven't already arrived. Colt did the knives last year. Smith & Wesson did the knife two years ago, or three years ago. And uh, this is our 10th year of Christmas for our troops. This is the ninth year for Teresa and myself. And... uh, it's it's the greatest thing in the world because all of our boxes they go to a name they don't go to a sergeant or a captain to hand out they go to a person and we've gotten responses back from kids that are sitting in Afghanistan and some no name canyon overlooking the Pakistani border that got their box and uh, wow the uh, the cards the letters uh, and everything that folks put in there. Uh, it it means so much to these kids over there. I'm an old fart, so I can call them kids. And uh, it's it's phenomenal. Folks can go to uh, christmasforourtroops.org and take a look at the website, and they can look at the goodie list and the canine list and see what we send over. Unfortunately, there was a change last year, and we can no longer send pig's ears to our canine buddies over there. I uh, wonder why. Really? Uh, they sure loved them for the eight years that we were doing it. And uh, But, no, it's, it's my time of year. I mean, with everything else that's going on and jumping and running, uh, my bride, Teresa, she we've got 28 boxes out in Artesia alone. Uh, we've got another five that are out in Carlsbad. We've got a couple of them out in Roswell. Uh, there's a lady, I'm trying to remember her name, I think it's Skeeter, that lives down in San Angelo that her and her granny friends, as she puts it, are busily crocheting 2,500 stockings. And each of these stockings will have a little rolled up uh paper in it with a Bible verse and a blessing, and uh, we've got 
close to 3,000 Bibles now, so every box will get a Bible. And uh, it's it's just my I time thought that they were I thought that they were banning. They were, they're not banning Bibles for personal use. They just don't. They will just won't allow any uh, like any access ones out there or something. To, yeah. No, our Bibles go in the box, and the guys get them. Uh, the problem that they have was chaplains getting large numbers of Bibles in for the troops, and the know-nothings thought, oh, well, they're trying to give these to the Muslims. And, uh, right. you know, the argument was, excuse me, they're written in English. Uh, but Yeah, you know, I, I, don't wanna, they, I don't want to take, any away from, take anything away from the Christmas of the troop things, but I will tell folks that uh, if you want to see some... Some craziness, then you can uh, you can very easily Google the story of the uh, of the government, which has strict guidelines on the handling of the Koran, uh, and if you absolutely must handle it with uh, wearing gloves, etc., all of the guidelines for it, and uh, and then the government itself, the military there, uh, packaged all of the Bibles up and took them to the dump and burned them. So, yep. uh, to me, that's just a uh, that's just another form of craziness perpetrated by our government. But I don't want to get sidelined on it. Like we'll stay on the the Christmas for our troops because I think this is very important. And I know that uh, in a lot of places, people think about uh, the things that they saw, like the uh, uh, what was it, the Crazy Ramadi video, the guy that's talking about going to the PX, you know, and swiping their card and getting goodies and stuff like that. In a lot of places, you can do that. But like you said, there's well, there, a, there yeah. are just as many places where where guys are sitting on a fire base and there's nothing there. They've got they've got food that comes in that uh, is either uh, you know helicoptered in uh, in uh, you know cardboard cases of MREs and stuff like that. So to, for them to get a package with some extra stuff, to, especially around Christmas time, is very important. And I've I've I've, I've hammered it in. You guys, many times it's 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 not even the things that they get. It's just the fact that that somebody somewhere is going to be connected to them at least for a few minutes when they when they get a package with their name on it, and it's a it's a huge deal. And I know it sounds like it's not to folks here uh, when you get a, a letter or something, but uh, overseas it's a big deal. Well, uh, I talked to some of the kids that have come back from our area, and uh, they were telling me that some of the guys will subscribe to uh, Cabela's and Sportsman's Guide and Natural Shooter Supply and stuff like that just so they can get mail. And uh, and and there's a kid I talked to last year that uh, had gotten a box the year before, and uh, he, we were doing our Walmart thing out in front of Walmart. And he come up and talk to us and manned the table for a while and chit-chatted. And he said uh, not only himself but a couple other guys in his unit got boxes. And in the bottom of one guy's box, he found a bag of M&Ms. And he made that bag of M&Ms last over a month. He would put one M&M on his, on his tongue at night at rack time and just let it <laughs> dissolve, think of home, and everything. And I looked at this kid and I said, you know, that makes me feel bad because a bag of M&M's around me is about four minutes. And, folks, it's it's just the most important thing in the world to me right now, and especially it's good talking about it on Veterans Day this year. 
These kids are over there. They're far from home. They see the news. They they know what a lot of people in this country are saying about them. And uh, it's, it's important that we get these boxes to them and they understand that there are folks that love them, that think about them, that pray about them, pray for them, and, and they're cared for. So, uh, again, if, if anybody can get me a name and an APO, they can send it to that email address, jimmy at htc-nm.com. They can go to the website. They can look at the uh, uh, goodie list. Uh, they can contribute cash. Last year, postage ran us right at $46,000. So wow. it is, you know, I'd stand on my head and juggle pumpkins for these kids. And uh, that'd be a show because, one, I can't juggle, and, two, I can't stand on my head. So. <laughs> well, you know, I want to make sure that everybody understands that, uh, uh, that whether you agree or disagree with, uh, with whatever is going on, that uh, that has nothing to do with this. This is just uh, making sure that uh, an American service member uh, doing their job faithfully to the best of their ability uh, is receiving a note of thanks from you. It has nothing to do with politics. It doesn't have anything to do with uh, whether you agree or disagree with why we're there or anything else. This is just, this is just uh, a perfect opportunity for folks to show that that they care and they respect the fact that uh, that we have individuals today that while we are worrying about uh, whether we're going to get rained on or uh, or whether uh, uh, the cable TV is going to go out or something like that, that uh, right at the very moment there are a lot of folks that uh, are worrying about whether they're going to be alive in the next hour or the next day or the next week. Right. And uh, the thought I'll leave everybody with is, uh, I can't remember who said it, but there was a quote that's always stuck in my mind. And especially on Veterans Day and thinking about Christmas for our troops and these kids over there, a veteran is a person that wrote a blank check to the government one time up to and including his life. And uh, I just I want to make these I want to make these guys have a bright day. I want them to have something that'll last with them. So Scott, right, well, listen, it on. Let's uh, before you go. Let's. Uh, I know before you go though, Jimmy. Let's uh, let's give them the information one more time for uh, for how they can get in touch with you or how they can help. Where, where do they go to if they want to help or they want to get in touch with you or they want to send you uh, a name. Uh, or an APO, how do they do that? Okay, first off, uh, if they want to contact me and give me a name and an APO, it's J-I-M-I at H-D-C-N-M.com. And the main website is www.christmasforourtroops.org. You pop that into yep. one of the search engines, it's going to take you to, because uh, I just did it, it's going to take you to the uh, uh, the website for this, and uh, and please take a minute to do this now. Don't don't wait because they got to be off uh, fairly soon. How what's the uh, cutoff date? 
Send it out to your email groups and everything. Let everybody know. Don't keep it to yourself. I'll post it as soon as I get through because uh, uh, guys that are familiar with the show know that the minute my hands touch the keyboard, my my lips stop moving. <laughs> I'm, sure a lot, you wish, I'm sure a lot of folks wish I was typing uh, a lot more often, but uh, uh, I'll post it on my <laughs> Facebook page uh, as soon as I get through. And, uh, and I encourage the rest of you guys to do the same thing. Try and uh, flood the uh, the the pages of Twitter and Facebook and everything else uh, with this, so that we can we can get some action on this, and we can uh, we can brighten put a little bright spot in a dangerous uh, in a dangerous and dreary job. And uh, yes, and most of the time, scout. yep. Do me a favor, Scout. Tell John I said hello, and sorry we missed the uh, round this this week. Well, yeah. Before you go, just uh, just let me know how are things going there. For you guys, that, for those of you guys that don't know, uh, Jimmy and uh, some of his neighbors there in New Mexico. Now we're talking about a desert uh, for uh, the other uh, 99.99999% of the time, but uh, they happen to be in the path of a uh, of an instant tsunami. And uh, and a lot of folks got uh, wiped out. Everything else, and I know that uh, you too, Jimmy. You got uh, a lot of damage to your home. How are things going on that? Well, we were uh, we were the last habited place between uh, the start of the flood and the river, and so everything basically came through our property and our house. Uh, Red Cross measured our high water mark at 52 inches, and uh, we were out of the house for several weeks. Uh, we had four inches of mud in the living room and three inches here in my office. And today I finally got the rest of the carpet out of the office and killing mold. But uh, we went down and we took out a loan to get some materials. And we're starting to rebuild. We've got the uh, dining room almost complete. And uh, then from there we're going to move on to the living room and the kitchen, and then finally get to my office at some point in time. But we're recovering. We bounce back. Uh, Riflemen don't lay down and roll over and play dead when things get tough. They get up, and uh, unfortunately, the only shooting I've been doing lately is shooting off my mouth when I hit it with a hammer, missing the nail, or find a burr on a drywall screw. (laughs) Well... Well, our, my my prayers are with you, I, and uh, once again, thanks to to you and the rest of the crews that are out there doing this. Uh, well, as soon as uh, as soon as I get off here, I'll start uh, plugging it in, and uh, and then let us know if there's anything else we can do. Then, uh, what is the cutoff date for this? When are they, when does uh, everything have to be in, and then the packages start rolling out to be shipped? Okay, our packing day is going to be December 11th in Midland, Texas. Uh, if anybody is within driving distance of Midland and would like to come down for packing day, they can email me and I'll give them directions. And uh, then the last day for locally here and everything else is going to be December 7th. Uh, we'll be making final pickups and the last run of stuff down to Midland on that day, or excuse me, the couple of days after that, and getting ready for the big push. Uh, everything will get packed up on the 11th. The post office will send the trucks over and pick up all the boxes, and they'll go out, and they should be in our troops' hands 
around the 20th. So we've after 10 years, we finally got this streamlined. Okay. All right, guys. Well, uh, I hope everybody listening will uh, will jump onto this and help us get the word out, and then uh, and then you come back on uh, next week and remind everybody again. Okay. Uh, I will, I won't well, see you next I'll week. It'll be Thursday. It'll be in. Uh, it'll be just in uh, uh, three days. All right. We're gonna this, we're doing the show tonight is a uh, uh, reschedule of last Thursdays, but we'll be on again for our regular show. On Thursday, same time, uh, same place. So come back on on Thursday and uh, remind everybody. I will, boss. You have a good one. Tell right. time we said hello. All right. I'll do Take that. Care. Take care, brother. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. I'm just uh, going to say it one more time, and that's it. Uh, that this really means a lot to the folks out there. It's something you can do, person, not to help an idea or a political party or anything else, just one other person out there that uh, who's, uh, who is sitting in a foreign country and, uh, and doing their best to, to stand their watch. Uh, and that's the reason that we have this country and the reason that we have our freedoms and our liberties is because, uh, as I said earlier, we have an unbroken line of patriots from the first uh, cruise that stood together on Lexington Green at the North Bridge in Concord, and then all the way along Battle Road back to, from uh, Concord to Boston, uh, all in one day. From that day to this one, there's an unbroken line of American patriots, of uh, men and women who served. And today is the day that we remember them, all right? We give thanks to the veterans. And uh, uh, we want to thank uh, all of the folks in Appleseed because we've got uh, a ton of veterans. And I see, uh, I see Sam, that you have, uh, you've got uh, Chris on the line. As soon as you get off with him, I want to bring you on so he can say hi. And uh, <clears throat> I also encourage you guys, uh, uh, we got a few minutes uh, left. Uh, if you'd like to call in and thank uh, some of your local folks, either Appleseed Crew or veterans, and uh, we'll be glad to keep taking that. I'm, I'm going to uh, I'm going to start talking in just a minute about, uh, about uh, some of the reasons that uh, that the colonists were successful and why we won the uh, American Revolutionary War. And then why, uh, like the title of the show says, why uh, our opponents, our enemies at the time, and one of them said uh, they have men amongst them who know very well what they are about. Now, this is a line that uh, you hear quite often at Appleseed. <clears throat> because at the beginning of the conflict, the uh, the the British uh, military had uh, had a very low opinion uh, of the American forces. Uh, they had uh, uh, they were making fun. Uh, now they the 
the colonials didn't have an army, and they had militia. They didn't have a standing army. There was no need for a standing army. Uh, the colonies have an empire. They didn't go out and wage war. They didn't try and enforce uh, uh, their rules of laws on anybody. They were just the colonies here. Uh, England, on the other hand, had a, uh, a huge empire. They had to maintain it. They had to defend it uh, from their, the rest of their U- European buddies. And because of this, England maintained, uh, at the time, the, the largest, uh, the most well-trained army on the planet. And their opinion of the Ameri- of the colonists was that uh, it was a very low opinion. They thought that they were no more than, uh, they were no more fit than to be beasts of burden that uh, uh, that uh, should uh, one of the officers uh, draw their swords even but halfway from its scabbard, they would cause the men to flee. Uh, and they they laughed and they made fun of the militia uh, as they were practicing, because, like I said, the the colonists didn't have a standing military. They had militia that was called, and when it was needed. Now they did have uh, uh, kind of like a a paperwork uh, forces, uh, because everyone was considered to be in in some form or fashion. Everybody was considered to be a part of defense of the the area they lived in. You know, some folks had uh, uh, the older-style militias or training bands, and that was where you just had one body of men, and everybody served in it. Some of them have picked up some of uh, the newer or different styles, uh, and they had, uh, like, multiple divided units where you had the uh, the Minutemen. Usually the, this was usually the younger, uh, mostly single, in good shape guys. They could... Uh, uh, throw their souls out of bed, uh, grab their shirt with one hand, grab their musket and their possibles bag in the other, and take off uh, at a run and be to wherever the trouble was immediately. And uh, usually the trouble was not redcoats. You know, for years it was uh, uh, defense against Indians or defense uh, against the French and Indians during the earlier French and Indian War, which is 20 years before the uh, American Revolutionary War. Or it could be a uh, a pack of wolves, or a bear, or uh, uh, it could be outlaws, because there were outlaws in the colony. They had outlaws well before Jesse James. It could be any of these things, but they didn't need a standing army got a constable that would take care of things. It was kind of like a local sheriff. And then it, in fact, required uh, the, if it necessitated a larger group of folks, then some part or all of the militia training band would be alerted, and then they would be activated. Uh, And like I said, some groups had the Minutemen, and then they would have uh, the... uh, uh, 
the uh, main body of, of folks who are the uh, you know a little bit older, which would be the majority of the uh, of the the men of the town, and then uh, and then you would have the older gentlemen that would have to, that would normally be part of uh, of either a uh, a formal alert uh, group or uh, or they would simply act in that way, and that's the the older guys who were not. Uh, they really weren't so suited for getting on the road and uh, and hiking uh, or running uh, ten or fifteen miles, or in my case, not even to get on their horses and ride. You know, they may be older folks, maybe uh, all the way from their uh, say from their their uh, mid to late forties, all the way up until their seventies. <laughs> These guys were usually uh, uh, asked to provide more of a uh, a home security thing. That is, if some of the men had to leave to go do something, then these guys would be armed and they would be the folks who would take the least uh, dangerous, least active role, and yet still uh, act in defense of their homes by providing security. And uh, as the troubles began to mount between the colonists and uh, the English army, who was by this time occupying the colonies. The English, the regular army, would watch because as the troubles grew more and more sharp and they became, and and things got more serious, then the militias would train on a more regular basis. Uh, and, and there was no set thing. You would go you know, from town to town, and whatever part of the company was working, it would, you know, it would just be a, a localized event. But regular army was watching the, uh, it would watch the colonists do their their training, and to them it was a great big joke because, uh, you know, these guys weren't professionals and they didn't know how to do the manual of arms, and they uh, their marching was was certainly not going to be on par with a uh, with a, uh, regular British Army uh, forces, uh, and some of the colonial militia had some uh, some strange customs, like uh, firing a blank charge musket like at the feet of the commanding officer uh, uh, when the unit was called to order. Uh, just uh, you know, it was just uh, they weren't they weren't professional soldiers, and uh, and this was uh, a cause of uh, great humor and laughing on the part of the regular British Army. All right, but uh, <laughs> uh, but as things turn out, uh, they weren't quite a laughing stock that they were made out to be. Well, we're going to talk about that in one minute. Right now, I want to bring uh, uh, Chris onto the show. Chris, are you there? Welcome to the show, brother. Chris, OG, can you hear me? The scout, Chris dropped off the line. He had to take another call. OG, okay. Well, just... uh, when he comes back on, 
just let me know, and uh, we'll get him back on. Chris was, uh, uh, he was uh, working in Apple Seed for a good long while. Chris is also a veteran. And, uh, and uh, I'm going to thank him for his service when he comes back on. <laughs> anyway, the, uh, the British regulars, uh, they didn't think much of the colonial militia. Like I said, until the until after uh, the events of April 19th, the colonists didn't have a regular army. There was no regular army because there was there was no there was nothing there was no reason to keep a standing army. Standing armies are very expensive to maintain because uh, because they've got to be fed and clothed and uh, and uh, all their equipment has to be maintained. And if there is nothing if there's nothing going on, why would you do that? That the colonists didn't have they weren't they were never at war with anyone. They were uh, they were simply minding their own business and. Uh, they didn't require a standing army, and uh, they didn't have a navy either. Uh, they had uh, private vessels, which uh, uh, which were engaged in private uh, industry and private commerce. But they didn't have a, a navy. <clears throat> England had uh, the largest and uh, most professional navy, and the largest and most professional army. <clears throat> and they did not think very highly of the colonists. Uh, you can read over and over how they, uh, the colonists who were British citizens, it's not like they were, that it was some other uh, foreign nation, they were British citizens. However, most of the colonists had been in the Americas for um, multiple generations, in some cases four and five generations. And and as as things go uh, in these situations, I mean, you you, you start developing uh, an individual identity. You start doing things different because because you're not in London, all right? You're not you're not in London where they've been doing things a certain way for a thousand years. You're in the Americas where things are different, and they were different. They were still British citizens, uh, and they were supposed to be operating under the British Constitution in one sense. However, the colonists also uh, were operating under their own charters and their own individual, uh, like many constitutions, that were specific to each colony uh, under charters from the king. And so they developed in different ways. So because of the fact that there was a distance that separated the, uh, the colonies and England and the Isle of, of England, began to manifest itself through the colonies uh, starting to attain their own identity. And because the, the English 
And when I'm saying English, uh, I know that the colonists were English. When I'm saying English in this way, I'm talking about uh, the folks who lived in England, the folks who lived there. They thought differently of the colonists. They thought of them because the England maintained colonies in all different parts of the world at this time. They began to think of the colonists in America not as British citizens so much, but as uh, as they did about the folks in in some of the other countries where they had colonies. So so the colonists then uh, began to be perceived to be of a lower standing than the folks who lived in England. All right. So now we have the the war beginning on April 19, 1775. We won't go into... Uh, <coughs> into a lot of the history of why it happened because that's uh, that's covered pretty well at uh, at Appleseed's and uh, and it's covered uh, and I covered quite a bit here but what we will talk about is why uh, why it didn't go the way that it would seem that it should have and that is with the the regular British army walking over the top of the colonists. And uh, one of the first things that uh, that would make a big difference is uh well let me let me say first that uh, uh I can't think of the guy of the of the person's name off the top of my head who said this but one of the uh uh, one of the guys in the, the English Parliament said, Englishmen uh, has to be the most unfit person to argue another Englishman into slavery. And uh, and that's that's absolutely true. I mean, how how is one Englishman going to argue the other one into slavery? Uh, then you have the distance uh, for the for the regular British troops to be resupplied. Uh, we were talking about thousands of miles, and, and mainly by sea in most cases. And this is especially true during the very beginning of the American Revolutionary War, because with the siege of Boston, the British forces were cut off uh, from all supplies by land. They did make some forging, some raids out foraging by boat and stuff like that. But for the most part, they were cut off uh, from uh, receiving any supplies by land, which meant they all had to be done by sea, and that meant all their supplies having to come from across the ocean. Everything they ate, everything they drank, uh, had to come from thousands of miles away by ship. And uh, the more, the farther you go inland from your uh, 
uh, from the port where you're landing the troops, then the longer your supply lines reach. And uh, and this begins to cost a great deal. Now, the whole reason that the that the American Revolutionary War began, or that the the troubles began in the first place, is because England had just fought a very expensive war uh, over the uh, the previous uh, 20 years before. They had fought a war with uh, France, and they had just about bankrupted them. And uh, so they were already very uh, very stretched for monies to pay for the war, and so they were going to tax the colonists for the, the previous war and for the stationing of troops for the defense of the colonies, and the colonists really weren't happy to do this. So now there's the costs uh, involved in this. And then you have the fact that that the the war, at, at least in the beginning, and then uh, certainly toward the end, was not a popular one uh, in England. Number one, these were British citizens. They were they were their own flesh and blood. Uh, many of the folks in England uh, were directly related to the folks that uh, in the colonies. Many of the folks in Parliament did not believe that what they were doing was the right thing. They were, uh, at least until the onset of war, they were arguing... Uh, for the colonists. Now, it's hard to do that after war is broken out because then you're, you're talking about an area that's kind of grayish with treason, and that is <clears throat> trying to support uh, or plead for your enemies in time of war. That's, uh, uh, you know, that's not, uh, not going to go down well, but at the same time, there was a great deal of support uh, in England for the for the uh, colonists. You had, uh, you had during the war, you had uh, basically uh, a pretty even spread between the folks who were, uh, who were pushing for separation from England, the folks that were actively engaged in the war for independence. And uh, then you had another third of the nation that was, uh, that was basically neutral. They didn't, either they didn't want to be involved or they didn't see any benefit uh, to independence or, uh, for the most part, a great deal of the, uh, the colonies. They, they didn't want to have to deal with any politics. They wanted to live their lives. They wanted to uh, to grow their crops and raise their uh, raise their uh, their crops and their animals and be left alone. Then you had a uh, another third that were that were loyal to the crown. And uh, the uh, a good part of 
the damage that was done to the the regular British Army's cause was uh, initially the regular British Army did not uh, trust the loyalists. Now the the loyalists there were there were hundreds of thousands of loyalists, and I think that they formed uh, close to close to seventy battalions. I think. Uh, of troops, but the regular British didn't trust them. They didn't think that they were uh, uh, they were worthy to serve, and uh, and they were not utilized. Now that's not to say that they didn't go on to fight, because they and that actually uh, helped push the folks that were on the fence off the fence and onto the patriot side. Anytime you have a, a a civil war, which the American Revolutionary was. The American Revolutionary War was a civil war because it wasn't. We weren't trying to topple a government and replace it. We we're trying to separate ourselves from the current, uh, the current, the current government, and that's a civil war. Anytime you have a civil war, then things get very, very ugly, uh, very quick because. That allows folks to uh, to try and settle uh, old uh, old problems and old dealings locally under the guise of of war, and and that's usually very ugly. Anytime you have neighbors fighting neighbors uh, and families fighting families, it gets uh, if, if it can get uglier, then, then it does. <clears throat> and that's what happened in a great many of the uh, of the colonies. Yeah, the folks that were loyal to the crown, and because of their loyalty to the crown, then they figured that that gave them, uh, in a lot of cases, more authority to do things that weren't right. And... Uh, they would treat these who were uh, who were patriots. Uh, they began treating them very cruelly and uh, burning the homes and farms of the uh, of the patriots, and then uh, confiscating crops. And then pretty soon they're confiscating the crops of 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 everyone except laws. Now that means that the folks that were that were neutral, once they start being abused, then the only place they have to go is to the side of the patriots, and that's what ha- that's what happened there. And you have uh, the cases too of the foreign troops that were used, and uh, and they uh committed a lot of acts of uh, they committed a lot of atrocity a lot of criminal acts <clears throat> and uh and this pushed a lot of the folks who were in the middle uh onto the side of the patriots <clears throat> uh, okay let me check back on chris here Chris, are you uh, are you back yet? Chris, are you back on the on the line? Okay, I guess uh, I guess Sam is going to check with him. 
Oh no, I see. I've got the I've got the wrong I've got the wrong one on CNN. Chris, are you back on the line there? Can you hear me? Yeah, I'm around. Yeah, I'm around. There you go. All right. Okay. I was actually I've actually opened up uh I actually opened up Sam's mic. Well, Chris, welcome to the show. Listen, I want to thank you for your service, brother. Wow. <laughs> well, that sounds good. Well, how are you doing right now? Just doing what I do, you know, living the life of a rifleman, high and mighty, playing farmer. Okay, and he says, uh, Sam is saying that, that you are going to, you wanted to brag on your son? Yeah, Benny, he actually graduated from the school for the infantry and then uh, got the honor to go work in D.C. And what are you going to do there? He's a rifleman in the 3rd Regiment Honor Guard, sir. Wow. So wow. there's another patch must... holder walking the streets of D.C. Well, he must, uh, obviously, he's a very sharp young man then because, uh, for those of you guys that don't know, that uh, the, uh, uh, the Honor Guard there doesn't uh, take just anybody. Uh, you have to really be uh, high up on your game uh, to be accepted into the unit, and uh, and uh, it's uh, it is an honor because these are the guys, these are yep. the the sharpest uh, the sharpest troops that uh, that are performing duties there uh, in and around the uh, uh, the District of Columbia, and uh, uh, these are the folks that you'll see. Uh, uh, there at formal functions, uh, you'll see them there at Arlington and uh, and a lot of the areas around there. Well, I'm sure you're very proud of him. Yeah, it was an honor when uh, he called me up and asked me, should I do it or not? And I was like, come on, son. He didn't even know what he yeah. was getting into. And that's, that's what was so <laughs> neat about it, that when I explained it to him, he's like, all these years, the things you've taught me, it's all coming full circle. I said, yeah, it's all coming full circle. Now it's time for you to shine. Well, that's great. You know, even if he, even if it turns out that he doesn't, uh, uh, that it's not for him, that he wants to do something, uh, do something different. This is still really great for, uh, you know, for your resume, and uh, and especially if your career. If he if he decides to uh, to take this long term, it's certainly going to look good. Uh, uh, you know, as part of his uh, military record that he served with there with the uh, the Honor Rifle Regiment there. But just think about how many of these young men and women that we sent to the armed forces that have been through our program and have that in their heart, and they they have a, a more understanding of what their mission is and what their duties are now. You know, and that's what he said is that now that I get to walk these streets and I get to see these monuments and I get to understand the stories that you told us, now I get to walk these grounds and see what it's all about. Because the first time they did, they took him through PT run, and it was in the dark. And when the lights came up, he goes, Dad, guess what I was standing over? I said, what's that? He said, JFK's, JFK's headstone. I said, exactly. That's exactly what you wow. did. Yeah, I blew him away. Wow. Yeah, that, it was too uh, much to take in. <laughs> well, you know, the Washington is, is certainly one of the uh, – one of the places in the nation that is uh, is about as packed full of our history as you can get. Uh, you know, every 50 feet 
you're you're bumping into another big chunk, uh, an important chunk of our history there. And uh, I'm not sure that uh, now at this point in my life I'd want to do that or live there, but I think it would be fantastic uh, to be a young man and uh, and doing that there. And be sure whenever you when you talk to him again, be sure and send him uh, uh, my congratulations and uh, and my well wishes for him. And I hope that he has a great tour of duty there. Yeah, well, like he says, when he opens up his walker in the morning, the first thing he hits him in his face is that rifleman's patch. And I was like, that's where it should be. <laughs> well, that's perfect. Well, how are things going with you? Oh, lovely. You know how it is. It's time to run them cattle. Right. Right. How is uh, uh, hunting season going for you? Do you really want to Are know? you still doing uh, – are yeah, you still doing uh, any yeah, guided uh, hunts? We, we still do it. We still do it. And it's another thing, you know, I get out them little one-inch squares when these guys show up, and they're like, well, that's not so hard. And I'm like, okay, lay down there and pop a cap. And guess what? They don't hit that one-inch square. And I'm like, really? You think you're going to take this rifle and shoot a deer at 400 yards? Maybe we want to check your zero first. And by the time I'm you know, done that's... with them, they're like, uh, what's about this red coat? Because then, you know, when we're sitting around camp, I'll break out a red coat and we'll get my little 22 out. And that little 22, you know, that, that tells all the stories right there. And they look at me and they're like, I want to learn how to do this. And I just give them a website and tell them how it's about. And if they need my gear, I'll loan them my gear. And there's been a couple of guys take me up on it. And they've gone to Osage Beach and a few other places. Right. And, uh, and I... You know, anytime that uh, that folks are coming here to hunt, uh, I usually do the same thing because I say, "Hey, you know, you're getting ready to shoot. When, when's the last time, last time you shot the rifle?" And they go, "Oh, well, I I shot it last year when I was hunting." And I said, "That's the last time you shot it last year." So, well, how do you know? Uh, how do you know that uh, that it's still shooting right? How do you know that you're still shooting right? <laughs> so, before you go hunting. Uh, why don't you come on out and let's get you on the range and let's see what you're going to do? I said because I don't want you, uh, I don't want you out there uh, wounding an animal, uh, you know. Because number one, it's uh, it's not an honorable way to hunt, and number two, I don't want you calling me uh, five minutes after dark to come and help you find uh, a wounded animal, and uh, I can make them make sure that they. Uh, that they put uh, a few rounds uh, through the rifle to check their zeros and make sure that uh, they at least get, uh, you know, 15 or 20 minutes of trigger time before they, they're, they're one 15 or 20 minutes of trigger time, uh, you know, a year before they go out and go hunting. I still got you. I think we may have, uh, yep, we dropped him. I didn't, I didn't do it. Uh, the uh, I guess the the switchboard did, or maybe we lost a signal. <laughs> uh, you know, folks, uh, folks are uh, they want to pull the uh, their rifle out of the closet, and they want to they want to go and shoot, and maybe some folks can do that. Uh, and apparently, a lot of folks do, but I tell you, there's a lot of there's a lot of misses. There's a lot of uh, of wounded animals, and 
it's just it's not right. If you're going to uh if you're gonna go out and you're gonna take a shot at uh at an animal then you owe it to uh yourself and uh to whatever you're hunting that uh that you know how to use the uh the uh the rifle that you're using. Right? So make sure that you uh Make sure that you uh, check your zero. And uh, if uh, Cam, if uh, Chris calls back in, uh, just uh, shoot me a note so I'll know. <clears throat> uh, turning to the uh, to the reasons that uh, America was successful in the Revolutionary War, uh, and the last thing we're talking about was just the great cost of this. It was costing more and more. As the war drug on, it was costing more and more. The uh, the British were making costly mistakes. Uh every time they uh every time they allowed uh, Washington Washington and his troops uh to slip away, it prolonged it. The colonists, of course, had much better knowledge of the terrain. And uh, and not just a knowledge of the terrain. Uh, no one in England, uh, because there was no one in, in in England or in America or anywhere else in the world that knew how vast the Americas were. You know, remember, we didn't we don't even get into uh, 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 Lewis and Clark uh, for another fifty years. The the colonies were vast. Uh, you know, at the time, what they considered the West, the far West, was Pennsylvania. That was the far West to the colonies. <clears throat> Washington had vowed that uh, even if they kept being beaten and pushed back, he would cross the mountains again and uh, and continue to fight. The colonies were were truly much too vast to ever be uh, conquered and garrisoned. Uh, the colonists maintained a much greater knowledge of the terrain. Uh, the motivation of the colonists was different than the motivation of the uh, the British regular forces. Uh, many of them uh, now they weren't all uh, uh, conscripts and uh, and the dregs of uh, English society. You know they were professional troops. Uh, many of them had sought out a career in the military, and and no different than uh, than folks nowadays do. You know they they wanted a career, they wanted a secure job, and they found it in the military, and yet. They weren't fighting uh, for their home. They were fighting to subdue a colony, and the colonists were fighting for their home. They were fighting uh, in almost all of the cases, except for the the times when you were talking about uh, the regular colonial army. You know, the guys in the in the blues, uh, the blue uniforms. <clears throat> Those guys might be fighting in different places around uh, around the America 
America then. But for the most part, almost, the, the majority of the battles were all fought by folks who were locals. They were actually fighting local to their uh, to their home or their county, fighting locally in their state uh, to defend their homes. <clears throat> Uh, they had a different motivation. Uh, then you have the the generals, the leaders involved. Uh, the American generals, you had uh, the through-and-through generals were George Washington, Nathaniel Green, and Henry Knox. These were the, there were the three of the generals that uh, continuity for the American forces because they were there from from day one till the end, <clears throat> and uh, on the opposite side, you had the British generals, which uh, there were some very skilled uh, generals that fought in the Americas, but uh, I think in all, in mo- almost all of the cases. They were uh, they were not. I don't think that they counted on, uh, or that they that they knew what they were going to be facing. I think that uh, for the most part, most of them thought that uh, the colonists were going to lay down in front of them, and uh, and that's not what happened. The the colonies. Uh, as far as tactically, the colonies uh, were defending. They uh, they all they had to do really, and you've seen we've seen this played out over and over again around the world by the indigenous colonies. All they have to do is survive. All they're going to have to do is keep is is keep the revolution going and uh, and survive. And like I said, the, the colonists were willing to do that. The colonies were vast, uh, and the colonists were willing uh, to retreat back uh, across the mountains into the wilderness areas and continue fighting. The, uh, the British had to conquer the territories, and then they had to hold them. You can't uh, you can't just conquer territory and walk off and leave because then it can be uh, it can be uh, taken back over by the by the revolutionary. So there was a vast amount of territory that the British had to uh, they had to conquer. Then they had to garrison, and they had a limited amount of forces and. <clears throat> And in the end, the the tide kept turning as the war continued on. Uh, more and more of the folks who, uh, as I said earlier, more and more of the folks who had been in the in the neutral began to be forced into the sides of the patriots. Even in areas that uh, that were really very loyal to the king uh, in the early parts of the American Revolutionary War, 
uh, once uh, Washington had been pushed out of New York and out of New Jersey, and those areas were occupied by uh, the British forces and the Hessians, their treatment of the local population uh, was horrific, including their own loyalists. Uh, if you read some of the darker parts of the American Revolutionary War, you'll see that uh, that there was uh, there was wide scale. Uh, I'm not going to say uh, 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 thought out or planned rapes, uh, although there might have been on local levels, but there was wide scale uh, abuse of the local populations, including uh, a, an absolutely horrific number uh, of rapes made by the occupying forces. There were uh, a large number of women, uh, young women, and even children in cases that were uh, that were brutalized by the British forces. Now, this was used and publicized by uh, by the colonists, and it turning the forces there, who, like I said, were initially loyal uh, to the uh, to the British. Uh, regular army to England uh, into uh, coming to the side of the uh, of the colonists and the rebels. And after eight long bloody years, uh, the majority of the colonists had moved into the camp of the rebels. Uh, and and for whatever reason it could be, one uh, a lot of folks wanted to hurry up and and finish the war so that they could return to normalcy. And if that meant uh, joining up with the rebels and fighting for independence so that they could become normal again, then that's what they were going to do. And uh, and the, the British made several costly tactical mistakes. Burgoyne's defeat at Saratoga, uh, the uh, uh, Cornwallis' defeat at Yorktown, as the uh, colonial forces uh, gained uh, in strength and uh, in uh, proficiency, finally led uh, to England seeing this as uh, as not an unwinnable. I don't think that they thought it was unwinnable. They just began to think of it as not worth the cost it was going to take. And then, of course, France. Uh, and Spain coming in on the side of the colonists uh, finally pushed the uh, pushed the the weight past the bearable, and after eight long bloody years, <clears throat> the the colonists won their independence. Now I'll end this with uh, with uh, Lord Hugh Percy, the second. Duke of Northumberland. Now, in 1774, he was sent uh, to Boston at the rank of Brigadier General. He was a colonel of the uh, the Fifth Regiment of Foot, and his views on military discipline were really uh, way out of their time. He didn't believe in corporal punishment, uh, and times when other commanders were flogging and using firing squads uh, on their own men, uh, he led his regiment uh, by precept and example. Now. 
at first he sympathized with the callers, but soon he began to he began to hate them for their behavior. And he is first he led their relief column, uh, which met up uh, with uh, the initial. Uh, uh, column with the additional uh, the initial brigade led out by by Smith, and he initially thought that uh, the colonists that the forces were fit only to be beasts of burden and to carry uh, carry the the loads for the British regular army. However, after their smashing defeat, they were they were defeated at uh, uh, along the fight on Battle Road back to Boston, then forced into Boston. Percy's whole idea has changed. And uh, he said, during the whole affair, the rebels attacked us in a very scattered, irregular manner. But perseverance and resolution, nor did they ever dare to form into a regular body. Indeed, they knew well, too well what was proper to do so. Whoever looks upon them as an irregular mob will find himself very much mistaken. They have men amongst them who know very well what they are about, having been employed as rangers against the Indians and Canadians. And this country, being very much covered with wood and hilly, this is a very advantageous method of their fighting. All right? They have men amongst them who know very well what they are about. That's what we say at Apple Seeds too. I want to thank everyone for... Uh, for listening tonight. I want to thank all of uh, our American veterans on this day. Uh, and we will see you guys uh, this next uh, Thursday night at uh, 7 p.m. Central. God bless and keep you all. <laughs>